Good morning. A simple Google search of the word love will yield 10 billion pages. I'm not sure that every opinion on love is appropriate for everybody. We know that there are different kinds of loves, but this morning I want to focus on what is called as Eros love. I've divided the sermon into five parts. In the first four parts, I want to focus on four specific groups that we all fall under. So without much ado, because we have lots of ground to cover, let's go to principle number one. And principle number one is for supreme lovers. Many years ago, Cher, in 1988, in a partly human, partly synthesized voice, asked this question, do you believe in life after love? I want to alter that question a little bit and ask, is life without love possible? Is life without Eros love possible? It is culture that has taught us that life without Eros love is not life at all. So if you're old enough to get married or past the age of getting married and still not married or in a relationship, then people are going to think you're weird. Or maybe you're a jerk. Or maybe it's because you're ugly. Or maybe it's because you have a different orientation, that's why you're not married. Because in this culture, we assume that everybody has to have Eros love. It's a tragic mistake to think that life without Eros love is not life at all. Because Paul lived a complete human life, but he did not have Eros love. Jesus lived a complete human life, but he did not have Eros love. No matter what Dan Brown with his misguided and ill-informed theological opinion says, but Paul encouraged a person to stay unmarried without Eros love. And if you will turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I will read for you a few verses from verse 32. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. In the following three verses, he talks about if you're unmarried, he recommends that you stay unmarried so that you can have undivided attention to the Lord. In the two verses after that, he says, if you are previously married and now you're a widow or widower, he recommends to stay unremarried so that you can have undivided devotion to the Lord. I know that in this culture, 
where we think Eros love is the way to go all the time, it is almost sacrilegious to suggest celibacy. But if God has called you to celibacy, the biggest mistake you can make is to be bitter for what you don't have in terms of Eros love than to celebrate what you do have in terms of undivided devotion to God. I call you a supreme lover because you are not bound by the bondages of Eros love. The principle therefore is undivided devotion. At this point, I think I've lost about a third of the audience. So the remainder of you can listen to the rest of the sermon. Principle number two is for newcomers. This includes anyone who has never been in a relationship and anyone who's not married. Okay, so your heart is pure and you've never been bound by Eros love. Now, I prefer to spend a few more minutes on this point and then we will skim over the rest of the remaining points. Dating is a great concept, isn't it? You're interested in someone, you just ask them out for a coffee or a burger or a pizza. Yes or no? Yes, great, let's move. No, that's okay, let's ask the next person. It's a great non-threatening, non-binding way to break the ice. It's great. But I see two inherent problems with the current system of dating. The first one is a predominance of emotions. I'm going to make a statement and then we will unpack it over the course of the next two minutes. The subjective should always be subject to the objective. The subjective should always be subject to the objective. This is true in spiritual life and in relationships. So if you have a spiritual experience which is subjective and you have the word of God which is objective, if your spiritual experience is biblical based on the objective truth of God's word, then it's a valid spiritual experience. If, however, your spiritual experience is not biblical, then you know who wins? The Bible wins. The objective truth wins. The subjective experience is always should be subject to the objective. Now, the problem with dating without the immediate intent of marriage is that the subjective is allowed to overrule the objective. The problem with dating without the immediate intent of marriage is that the subjective is allowed to overrule the objective. When you are dating somebody with the immediate, with the initial intent to get married, your approach is different. You can use the objective head and not the subjective heart. I suggest that we use our heads before our hearts. Well, then you may ask me, why can't I let my heart lead my head? We are talking about love after all, and love involves the heart and therefore is subjective, and why not let my heart lead my head? Well, the fact is that love is both subjective and objective. It's both. It's not just the heart. 
It's both the head and the heart. If you lead with your heart, your head does not follow. Your head is pretty much thrown out the window. That's why you need to lead with your head and your heart will follow. In 2002, I was in India. I was in private practice. I was minding my own business. I, I was not troubling anybody. I was doing my own thing. While my wife, my future wife, was in Chicago in school. We met through a friend of a friend of a relative of a friend that gave me the email ID of her dad. So I mailed him. And over the course of the next four months, we e-dated. We sent emails back and forth. We didn't IM, we didn't Facebook. There was no Facebook. We didn't Facebook, we didn't chat, we didn't call. We just e-dated, we just emailed. At the end of four months, on one Sunday in November, she comes to see me for the first time. At this point, we had discussed already what our dreams and our plans and our aspirations and our desires were. She comes to see me on a Sunday afternoon for the first time I see her. That evening, I propose to her. Monday morning, we are engaged. It was easy. <laughs> because by then, we had done the head work already. Once the head work was done, we were free to allow the heart. Of course, I had to see her once before I proposed. <laughs> I just want to make sure she didn't have an extra head or a couple extra hands. Using your head first before your heart also allows you to take advice. I know if there's a young person here, they're going to hate what I'm going to say next. The best advice to take is from your parents. Why? Because they know you the best. If your dad was uninvolved and they are crazy, don't take their advice. I mean, objectively crazy, not you feel that they're crazy. <laughs> because most teenagers feel that their parents are crazy. If your parents want the best for you, then they will want the best for you for your future marriage partner. If you have a normal parent, young people, do you really think that your parents want to screw you over? No. I suggest that their expectation of your marriage partner is better than your expectations. More often than not. But leading with the head helps you to take advice. The second problem that I have with dating in its current form is the age factor. What is the right age to date? The answer, the age at which you are thinking about getting married. Why? Because when you date earlier than that, you have no idea what you're looking for. What you're looking for at age 16 is so much different than what you're looking for at age 25.
The problem with dating and falling in love at age 15, 16 is that now you're stuck with the person whether you like it or not. I know there are people that fall in love with their high school sweethearts and their marriage is great now, but that is the exception, not the rule. Because when you fall in love with somebody at age 16, at that point in your life, you guys are great. You're on the same page, you think alike, you want the same things, but then eight years later, you are in a totally different place, but now you are stuck with this guy tagging along. Well, then you can ask the question, why can't I keep dating people until I meet the right person? And then when you meet the right person, boom, you know it, and you get engaged and get married, right? Well, that seems logical, but can't be practical. Because relationships are not dead things. Your emotions never completely reset after a relationship. If you were trying to select a laptop, you could take a Toshiba, and that didn't work, you could shut that down. You could buy an IBM. If that didn't work, you could shut that down. You could buy a Lenovo. If that didn't work, you could shut that down. You could buy a Sony. If that didn't work, you would shut that down. Then you buy a Mac, and that will work, obviously. <laughs> but relationships are not like that. If the first one doesn't work and you shut that down, you still carry the scars of that relationship. Why get your heart so beaten up before you meet the right person? Why meet loser number one and break that down, meet loser number two and break that down, and when you finally meet the right person, you are stuck with the emotional scars from losers one through nine. Why do something for fun when the effects are going to be detrimental for the rest of your life? Let's say that you loved skiing, but each time you went skiing, you lost a toe. <laughs> Would you still go skiing? No, it doesn't matter that you love skiing. By the time you're done with 10 cycles of skiing, you would be walking on stumps. Why do things that are detrimental, even though they seem to be fun, why do it if they are detrimental for the rest of your life? The median marriage age for men in 2010 was 28 years, up from 26 years in 1990. The median marriage age for women was 26 years in 2010, up from 24 years in 1990. In the August 2010 Time magazine, their cover story asks this question, why are so many people in their 20s taking so long to grow up? In the Feb 2012, The Atlantic, they asked this question, adulthood delayed, what has the recession done to millennials? So the millennials have delayed growing up into adults. The millennials is that generation that is after the Gen Xers, okay? So the boomers are from 1946 to 1964, 
The Gen Xers are 1964 to 1982-83, and then you have the Millennials, which are from 1982-83 to maybe 2002-2003-2004. They also call the Y generation. I mean, the letter Y, not why, why do they exist. Not that, <laughs> the letter Y. The Millennials have delayed growing up into adults. But unfortunately, their dating habits have not. The movie ratings have not. The legal age to become an adult has not. So at age 18, they are not adults. They have delayed growing up into adults. But at age 18, you are legally an adult. The movie rating should be changed to keep up with the delay in adulthood maturity. So that R rated should not be at age 18, it should be 20 or 21 because of this delay. But that has not been done. And so what we have now is people who are non-adults who are now making adult choices like dating and marriage. Asking a 15-year-old to choose a marriage partner is like asking a five-year-old whether they want to be a teacher or a space engineer. They will give you an answer, but that may not be the most cogent answer. You hope that as they mature, they will start giving you a more mature answer. The same thing with somebody who is young and making the decision to date or to marry somebody. When the median age of marriage is 28, dating from the age 14 or 15 or 16 opens a door for premarital physical relationships. You leave a decade-long window for physical relationships, which explains the following statistic. Approximately one in five adolescents has had physical intimacy before his or her 15th birthday. And that information is from 2002. In a 2005 study of US teenagers by the Kaiser Family Foundation, one third of teens reported feeling pressure to have physical intimacy. One third of physically intimate teens reported being in a relationship where they felt were moving too fast physically. And one fourth of them had done something physically intimate they really did not want to do. To the question, if you have had physical intimacy, do you wish you had waited longer? And the majority answer was yes. To the question, when it comes to your teen decisions about physical intimacy, who is the most influential? And the majority answer was parents. Why then are we dating at a very young age? It detracts from the immediate responsibilities of being a student, for example. It affects your further relationships and opens a door for sin. What is the biblical principle of falling in love? About 15 years ago, I was speaking in a church in which the average age of the church was probably 70. So there were very old people in the church. And the average age was 70 because of a couple kids in the front row. 
And throughout the sermon, I gave these verses and nobody turned their Bibles. But one of my last points was a biblical principle of falling in love and everybody hurried on to open their Bibles and turn to it. What is a biblical principle of falling in love? Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Wait for it. Love is not something you create, but something you receive. So wait for it. Don't let the fact that somebody else is in a relationship alter your view to force you to be in a relationship. If you are headed to your aunt's house for a great Thanksgiving dinner, don't stop at McDonald's for a couple burgers. You might as well control your physical desires so that you can enjoy the feast that's coming up. For the remaining one-fifth of you that are still listening, the third principle is for honeymooners. I include everybody who has recently fallen in love into this category. Canadian singer Brian Adams in his song, When You Love Someone, explains honeymoon love. He says, when you love someone, you'll do anything. You'll do all the crazy things that you can't explain. You'll shoot the moon, put out the sun, when you love someone. You'll deny the truth, believe a lie, There'll be times that you'll believe you can really fly. That's classic honeymoon love. Dr. Sue said, you know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. This is the stuff. This honeymoon love is the stuff of TV shows, movies, songs, books. And culture will show us only honeymoon love. So even if you looked at a movie and you saw a 65-year-old couple, they will show you honeymoon love, which informs us wrongly that that is the only kind of love available. But that is not true. That excitement and the epinephrine-induced love that exists during the honeymoon period will never return again. It happens only once. It is replaced by a mature, seasoned love. The reason why many older marriages fail is because they went past the honeymoon love, they went into a matured, seasoned love, and they desired the honeymoon love again, and it's not there. It will never be there. And so what they do, they find somebody else to get that honeymoon love back. Honeymoon love lasts for a little bit and then it's over. It moves on to matured love. Honeymoon love gets your heart pumping, gets your pulse racing, gets your respirations rapid and your blood pressure is elevated. But mature love is unostentatious, consistent, stable, dependable, faithful,
Unfortunately, if we are looking for the sudden flames of love during marriage, we will miss out on the continuous fire of mature love. If you're in the honeymoon phase, enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. It'll be over, and then that's it. <laughs> the fastest way to get out of honeymoon love is to have a kid. <laughs> Gentlemen, if you thought you were the center of her universe, the moment she has a kid, you are banished to the cold outer fringes of her universe. <laughs> so the principle for the honeymooners is to recognize maturity. The fourth principle is for seasoned lovers. It is easy to let mature love degenerate into mundane love. It's easy to let the trials of work and life and parenthood take away from your relationship. How do we rejuvenate the relationship? I just said that we cannot get back honeymoon love. That's over. But this mature love, you can rejuvenate. The principle is the same as in the spiritual arena. When you first became a Christian, the love you had for God was incredible. You wanted to stay up late reading the Bible. You sang songs when you went to bed. You woke up praying and you would find the next person and every person you saw and wanted to share the gospel to them. But then over the course of time, that love waned and stalled and meandered. How do we get back that first love? The Ephesian church had the same problem, and Jesus addressed this question in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 and 8. He says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Did you see the solution to the problem in that verse? Let me read it again. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Here's a solution. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do it even though you don't feel like it. So stay up late reading the Bible like you did at first and go to bed singing songs and wake up praying even though you don't feel like it. And as you do what you did at first, the feeling will follow. In other words, pretend. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. There are two kinds of pretending. There is a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing. As when a man pretends he is going to help you instead of really helping you. But then there is also the good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. When you are not feeling particularly friendly but know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you are a nicer person than you actually are. <laughs> 
And in a few minutes, as we have all noticed, you will be feeling friendlier than you were. Very often, the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you already have it. That is why children's games are so important. They are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop. But all the time, they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of grown-up helps them to grow up in earnest. So do the things you did when you were initially married. If you opened the door for your wife and if you brought flowers for her, and if you sent her random love texts in the middle of the day, do it. You may not feel like it, just do it. The feeling will follow. If you came as a couple for today's service, you are at a disadvantage because gentlemen, you will go home and try it and your wife will tell you, you're just pretending. <laughs> do it anyway. Do it anyway and the feeling will follow. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who along with her father and other family members helped many Jews survive the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And they were imprisoned for it. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, she says how after the war, she met a God who was her captor after one of the services. He was a, her guard at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. She was speaking at a church in Munich and after she had spoken, this guard comes forward, meets her and says, I was a guard from the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Will you forgive me? And stretches out his hand to her. Corey says that for a moment she hesitated because she recalled all the things that he had done while he killed her sister and those around her. But she remembered the verse that said, forgive or you will not be forgiven. But still not feeling the ability to lift her hand towards him, she prayed, Jesus help me, I can lift my hand, you supply the feeling. And as she woodenly thrust her hand into the hand of her former captor, she says that the healing love of God and the warmth flowed through her and into her captor. And she writes that she never felt the love of God as intensely as she did at that moment. Stretch out your hand and God will supply the feeling. I want to end with talking about the three levels of love. Japanese theologian Masumi Toyotomi, in his book, Three Kinds of Love from 1969, says that there are three levels of love. The first level is the if love. If you do this for me, then I will love you. It is a base, crass love. It is a selfish love. In Genesis chapter 28 and verse 20 following, Jacob makes this vow. He said, if God will be with me and will watch over me and give me food and give me clothes and give me a job 
and make my team win their first football game. Then I will love you. This is a classic Hollywood love. In 1994, 26-year-old Anna Nicole Smith married 89-year-old oil tycoon billionaire. If then, if you are rich and about to die, then I will love you. <laughs> the second level of love is the because love. Because you did this for me, so I will love you. That is a general human love, the because love. This is the only kind of love that we can have toward God. For in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. The third level is the in spite of love. In spite of who you are, I will love you. So in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If the if love is a preconditional love and the because love is a postconditional love, the in spite of love is an unconditional love. And that is the love of God. Karl Barth was one of the preeminent Swiss theologians of the previous century. And one day towards the end of his spiritual life, he had come to lecture in the U.S. And one of the students asked him this question. Dr. Barth, what is the most profound thought that has entered your mind? Dr. Barth reflected for a moment and said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In the song, You Love Me Anyway by the Sidewalk Prophets, they sing, I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I am the sweat from your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nail in your wrist, but you love me anyway. I am Judas's kiss, but you love me anyway. I am the man that called out from the crowd for your blood to be spilled on this earth-shaking ground. Then I turned away with a smile on my face, with the sin in my heart, tried to bury your grace. And then alone in the night, I still called out for you, so ashamed of my life, my life, my life, but you love me anyway. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it is Mel Gibson's hand that puts the nail in the hand of Jesus. And he did it symbolic of the fact that he held himself accountable for the crucifixion of Christ. You and me put the nail into the hands of Jesus. Speaking about that moment when the nails went into the hands of Jesus, John Phillips in his book Exploring Romans writes these words, those iron bolts of Rome in the pierced hand of the crucified Christ 
could have well become thunderbolts of wrath. He could have hurled his anathemas across a guilty world, summoned from the four ramparts of heaven twelve shining legions with drawn and flaming swords and marched to Armageddon right then and there. But instead he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. While we were still sinners, while we were crucifying Christ, he loved us and died for us. If there's anybody here who has never experienced the love of God personally in their lives, I'm going to ask you to stand up and we can pray together. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, never come into a relationship with him and you wish to do that this morning or if you think that your love to God has degenerated to an if love or if your relationships with other people are if loves and because loves and you want to move from that to an in spite of love you can stand up and we can pray together If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. If it's a prayer that you mean from the bottom of your heart, he is faithful to fulfill his end of the deal. You can pray, Lord Jesus, I was unlovable, and yet you loved me. I was unworthy, and yet you counted me worthy enough to die for me. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. I invite you into my heart and ask you to come and change it completely. Help me to live a life that is worthy of you. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for anyone who wants to move from a selfish love to unconditional love. You have shown us, Lord, the way that we need to love. And I pray for those who want to emulate you. I pray that you would give them the strength, give them an anointing of the Spirit as they try to love people unconditionally with an in spite of love. In Jesus' name, amen.